Please turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 19 and Deuteronomy chapter 18. In your bulletin, you have uh, two inserts that I'd like to call to your attention uh, that relate to our sermon sermon today. Uh, One is uh, this family for the father. This is a program in our church that's been in operation a year where we commit ourselves, you do as an individual or as a family, commit yourself to trust God to use you to reach another family, to reach out to them with the gospel and uh, to win them to Christ if they're not Christians and, and into the fellowship of the church during the coming year. You trust God to use you in that way. And then we try to help you. You make the commitment. We try to help you in terms of suggestions and events that you can bring that party to, and uh, so on, prayer. Uh, We have the anniversary of that uh, before us coming up, and we are going to ask you to uh, join us in that program if you haven't already, or to re-up if you have, and notice there's a luncheon coming up for this in particular, and uh, we'd like to get your indication of whether you can attend the luncheon, you can fill that out, and also challenge you to be a part of this, to sign up for it as individuals or as a family. Another insert that uh, relates to evangelism is uh, our summer outreach program. The way it's pictured, it looks like we're going to take a trip to Hawaii. But we're not really going to do that. This is uh, something that is really our summer EE program. We don't do the basic EE training during the summer, but we go out and uh, we call on folks and we have some training. And uh, we'll be doing that week by week here. We'll have a supper here, catered supper. And if you can be with us in that program while you'll come on Wednesday nights for the supper and uh, then uh, we'll have some training and then we'll call on folks who visited us. And the two could relate. That could help you reach your family for the Father. That all relates to the scripture that we come to in our study of the book of Exodus. We come to the giving of the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai in chapter 19, verse 1. In the third month, when the children of Israel were gone forth out of the land of Egypt, the same day came they into the wilderness of Sinai. At this point, God republishes the law. Now, why do I say that God republishes the law? When were the commandments, Ten Commandments, first given? When did God first give his law to man? They were first given when God created the first man, Adam. God wrote the law on man's heart. Man intuitively knew right and wrong. Now, when Adam sinned, uh, he, his mind became darkened. He didn't think straight anymore. He didn't love the right things anymore. didn't choose the right things anymore. became rebellious by nature. Uh, But still, the law is written even on fallen man's heart. He has a conscience. And while it's somewhat effaced and somewhat off kilter, his conscience doesn't speak totally accurately, Still, he has some idea of right and wrong. 
And there's a correspondence between uh, that and what's written in the Bible. Not a total correspondence, but still something of a general correspondence. Paul discusses this in the second chapter of Romans, and he puts it this way. Romans 2.14 When the Gentiles, which have not the law, he's speaking of man without the Bible, do by nature the things contained in the law. There's some correspondence between their idea of right and wrong and the Ten Commandments. They show the work of the law written in their heart, uh, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or excusing one another. The law is written in the heart. So this is a republishing of the law because it had become somewhat dim and somewhat effaced. It needed republishing. Didn't speak as clearly or as authoritatively as it should, as convictingly. Now, these Ten Commandments, the form of this republishing, Ten Commandments, these are broad. These are summary statements. Uh, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Jesus said that applies to looking on a woman and lusting after in your heart. If you do that, you've broken that commandment. Or, thou shalt not kill. Jesus said, if you uh, use abusive language towards someone, or you get angry at them, uh, there's such a thing as righteous indignation. Jesus got angry at sin, the hardness of men's hearts. But anger that's not righteous indignation, and most of ours is not. Uh, he says, that's breaking the law. Thou shalt not kill. These are very broad, they're unique. These Ten Commandments engraven on stone. They're separated out from the other laws. Uh, they are intended to be permanent. They are put in uh, the Ark of the Covenant and so on. And not only does it take the form of Ten Commandments, which we find that he begins to state them, like in chapter 20, verse 1, And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And he gives the Ten. But they are also called a covenant here. In verse 5 of 19, chapter 19, Now therefore, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be a peculiar treasure. He's referring to these Ten Commandments here as a covenant. Notice how he gives these commandments, the manner of it. In chapter 19, verse 10, The Lord said unto Moses, Go unto the people. And sanctify them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes, and be ready against the third day. For the third day the Lord will come down in the sight of all the people upon Mount Sinai. And thou shalt set bounds unto the people round about, saying, Take heed to yourselves, that you go not up into the mount, nor touch the border of it. Whosoever touches the mount shall be surely put to death. There shall not a hand touch it. But he shall be surely stoned or shot through, whether it be beast or man, it shall not live. When the trumpet soundeth long, they shall come up to the mount. Uh, in verse 16, it came to pass on the third day in the morning, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount, so that all the people that was in the camp trembled. And Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the nether part of the mount. And Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace. 
and the whole mount quaked greatly. And when the voice of the trumpet sounded long and waxed louder and louder, Moses spake, and God answered him by a voice. And the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mount. And the Lord called Moses up to the top of the mount, and Moses went up. Boy, what a dramatic scene. Why did God give the Ten Commandments in such a dramatic way? To convey His holiness and their sinfulness. You must not approach. You cannot come to me like you are. I'm holy. You're sinful. He wanted to convey that. I'm reminded of... uh, a mother who was trying to get her son to eat prunes. And uh, he didn't like prunes, and he refused adamantly. And so she used the ultimate threat. She said, if you don't eat your prunes, God won't like it. Well, I'm not going to eat my prunes. So she sent him off to his room. Well, shortly after he went up there, there was a terrible thunderstorm. And she became concerned that he might be afraid. So she tiptoed in his room, and he was... Looking out the window, to all the lightning and the thundering, and he was shaking his head and he says, All this fuss over a few lousy prunes. <laughs> uh, we might say, All this fuss over a few lousy commandments. And no, uh, God is holy. And he must convey that, and we must get the message. And notice their reaction. They request a mediator. Chapter 20, verse 18. And all the people saw the thunderings and the lightnings and the noise of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they removed and stood afar off. And they said unto Moses, Speak thou with us, and we will hear, but let not God speak with us, lest we die. They said, Moses... Uh, you, you go speak to him, and you tell us what he said. We need a go-between. Exactly. God wanted to convey that. Look at Deuteronomy 18, when some years later, Moses reviews this event just prior to his death. He, re, uh, he reminds them of this. Deuteronomy 18 and verse 15. The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee, says Moses, a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me. Unto him ye shall hearken, according to all that thou desirest of the Lord thy God in Horeb, in Sinai, in the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, neither let me see this great fire any more that I die not. And the Lord said unto me, when you said that, they have well spoken that which they have spoken. God said, that feeling, that request for a mediator, that's exactly what I intended to produce in them. And I will give them a mediator. Verse 18, I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren, like unto thee, Moses, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. And it will come to pass 
that whoever will not hearken unto my words which he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. Who was that? That was to be the Lord Jesus Christ, the mediator that God would raise up between man and himself. Moses typified Jesus as a mediator, but the real mediator between a holy God and sinful man would be Jesus Christ, who would come into this world and take our guilt upon himself as the Son of God and man and die under the wrath of God do us for our sin and thus become a mediator between God and man through whom we could approach God and be forgiven and be in personal relationship with him. Well, we see the republishing of the law, the request for a mediator that this was designed to produce. What's the relationship of the law to the covenant of grace? God entered into a covenant with Abraham. I will be a God to you and to your seed after you. And uh, that's the first full statement of the covenant of grace, God's gracious way of dealing with us. Uh, that God would covenant that he would forgive us, uh, he would uh, send his son, and as a gift, by grace, all who put their trust in his son, all who surrender their will to his son, they trust him to save them. They believe his claims and they commit their lives to him as their Savior and Lord, that he would justify them. They would be in that covenant of grace. Well, why does the law fit into that? Uh, if, if it's by grace, if it's a gift, what does law-keeping have to do with it? Well, uh, the law wasn't given to redeem us. Christ redeemed us. If the law had been given to redeem, then it should have been given to them in Egypt. You remember we said that God was painting a picture on the map of the world here in history of the way of salvation. And when they were in Egypt, the Israelites, that pictured unsaved man in his bondage and guilt with judgment hanging over his head. When they were delivered through faith in the blood of the Lamb that they put over their doorpost, which pictured Christ's death, the true Lamb, they were on their way to the promised land, heaven. When did they get the law? Well, if they were saved by getting the law, by keeping the law, they should have received the law back in Egypt, not after they got out of Egypt. And God should have said something like, when you keep my Ten Commandments 88% of the time, then I will deliver you. But it didn't work that way. He delivered them freely through the blood of the Lamb. And then he gave them the commandments as to how they were to live with him. I redeemed you. I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you will keep my commandments. The law wasn't given to redeem. It wasn't given to replace the covenant of grace or reverse any of the privileges. Paul discusses that in Galatians 3. Rather, it was given to render the covenant of grace effective. The law would thunder at us and speak of God's holiness. And as a result, we would realize our sin and we would flee to the Savior. We'd look for a mediator, just as they did. 
It would render the covenant of grace effective. It make us realize our need of grace. It was given to reveal our sin. Romans 3.20 says, By the law is the knowledge of sin. The law shows me my guilt. There's a little poem. My guilt appeared but small before, till terribly I saw how perfect, holy, just, and pure was thine eternal law. Then felt my soul the heavy load, it goes on to say. The law is given to convict us, to reveal our sin. Average person around you doesn't understand that. The average person in your community thinks that God's going to accept them because they've been pretty good people. They think that he's going to accept them on the basis of their law-keeping. They may believe about Jesus, they may not believe about Jesus, but they think he's going to accept them on the basis of they haven't been too bad. That's ruinous. That's disaster. That's why we have family for the Father. Reach out to these people. Shed some light. The average person thinks that... Uh, uh, all this thundering that the preacher's doing... Is just a lot of fuss about a few lousy prunes. No, it's the fact that they've broken God's holy law. The it's given to reveal sin. It's given to reveal the nature of God that He is holy. People make light of God's commandments. Here's an article in the paper about it, an, adver- an advertising agency that wrote to other advertising agencies and said, let's, let's have a contest, see who can come up to, with the best ads to promote the seven uh, deadly sins. Wrath, lust, avarice, and gluttony, sloth. And so they had a contest. Which one could come up with the best one to promote lust and the best one to promote pride? And for instance, uh, a uh, picture of full-page ad with Rudolph Valentino reeking with animal magnetism, ravishing a girl on a fur-colored divan. And then it says underneath, Any sin that's enabled us to survive centuries of war, death, pestilence, and famine can't be called deadly. And the caption says, Lust. Where would we be without it? Well, people make fun of God's laws, but it, God doesn't take it lightly. He says the wages of sin is death, meaning hell. Gallup took a poll and found out that only 53% of the people in America believe in hell. 66% believe in heaven. The more education you have and the more money you make, the less you believe in hell. Most people believe who do believe in hell believe it's for rapists and murderers and not for good people. Billy Graham says that men don't understand how evil sin is in the eyes of a supremely holy God. Exactly. They don't know. And we've got to let them know. That's our job. It was given to reveal sin, to reveal the nature of God, and to be a rule that we live by. To be a rule of life. 
The idea that uh, God has moral standards, of course, is widely decried today. Alan Bloom, in his bestseller, uh, The Closing of the American Mind, How Higher Education Has Failed Democracy uh, in uh, and Impoverished the Souls of Today's Youth. He says that one thing any professor can count on with a student coming to college is that he will not believe in absolutes. He won't believe there's any right and wrong that's universally true. Uh, he'll, be, he'll believe in relativism. And uh, in a Wall Street Journal editorial, Vermont Royster uh, says <clears throat> that uh, it is typical of how there's an increasing response of somewhat agnosticism to social issues like divorce and homosexuality and abortion and so on. He says, he complains about the ill voices of the self-righteous who claim to speak for God. And he says, he himself is a poor, frail creature who, like all humble souls, can only grope for God's will. Well, do we have to grope for God's will in the area of right and wrong? Is abortion right or wrong? I guess we just have to grope along and try to figure it out. Is homosexuality right or wrong? We just have to grope. What's he done? Well, he's acted like he's humble, but actually he's, in effect, saying God hasn't given us any universal norms that we're to live by. He's become an agnostic in the area of ethics. Dennis Kinslow, former president of Asbury College, was looking for a Christian sociologist for the faculty of his college. And he tells about uh, being on a plane and sitting next to a young man and, and entering conversation with him. He found out he was a graduate student in sociology at a state university. So he decided he'd try to get some information about the study of sociology. He said, uh, do you like sociology? Love it. Uh, you going to spend your life in it? Yes. Well, I'm a novice and an outsider, but it's my understanding that a sociologist cannot use the categories of good and evil, true and false, right and wrong when he works as a sociologist. Is that right? Um, he thought about it for a moment, and then he said, yes, that's right. Let me get this straight. Kinslow said, why can't you use categories of right and wrong, false and true, as a sociologist. He said, well, we have to be objective. And how can I, within my sociological system, pass a moral judgment on what takes place in another sociological system? As a sociologist, I cannot. In other words, as a sociologist, you cannot act as if there's a moral order out there. That's right. Well, then why... Uh, if there's no objective moral order, do we all feel guilty at some time or another? Student said, mm, that's a good question. I don't know. Well, you're going to go into this and spend your life in it. Yes. Uh, why are you going to do that? Well, the reason I'm going to do that is there's so many blooming things wrong out there. It's about 40 seconds before he 
turned red. Said you trapped me, didn't you? Said, no, I didn't. And I hadn't. When he had to make a decision as a human being, he could not operate without the very categories that his social science told him to ignore. There is an objective moral order, right and wrong, God-given. And one purpose of redemption is to enable us to conform to that standard of God, to live by the Ten Commandments. In Romans 8, 3 and 4, Paul says, What the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. The law couldn't produce obedience. It couldn't produce moral living. There wasn't anything wrong with the Ten Commandments, but there was something wrong with us. It was weak through the flesh. Something wrong with us. God sending his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. When he punished Christ for our sins, he overthrew the dominion of sin in the flesh of all those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. Christ died to make us holy to enable us to live the way the Ten Commandments said live, not perfectly, but progressively to live that way in the power of the Spirit. So the whole purpose, in a sense, of redemption is to enable us to conform to God's standard. The power to do it comes from the Spirit of God, but also the power to do it comes from the law itself as we meditate on the law. Calvin puts it like this. Although the law is inscribed and engraven on their hearts, the Christians' hearts, by the finger of God, that is, although they are so excited and animated by the direction of the Spirit that they desire to obey God, yet they derive a twofold advantage from the law. For they find it an excellent instrument to give them from day to day a better and more certain understanding of the divine will to which they aspire. And we need not only instruction, but also exhortation. And the servant of God will derive this further advantage from the law. By frequent meditation on it, he will be excited to obedience and restrained from the slippery path of transgression. Wesley put it like this. Wesley said, the third use of the law is to keep us alive. It is the grand means whereby the blessed spirit prepares the believer for larger communications of the life of God. Let me read that again. Because I want larger communications of the life of God. He says that the third use of the law is to keep us alive. It is the grand means whereby the blessed spirit prepares the believer for larger communications of the life of God. Give you an illustration. Picnic, uh, several years ago, one of our members made some comments to me about another member. And then she wrote me this letter a couple of days later. I humbly asked your forgiveness for the unkind remarks that I made about another member of the body of Christ in your presence yesterday at the picnic. The Lord convicted me strongly that while 
blank may have acted insensitively, I am guilty of the far greater sin of an unbridled tongue colored with anger, exaggeration, and malice. The Spirit of God convicted her that she had violated the law of God. Her conscience was informed by the Word of God. And she responded in repentance and confession. And she received larger communications of the life of God. That's how we grow spiritually. The law is tremendously important to the Christian. So it's given to reveal our sin and to reveal the nature of God, to be a rule of life, and finally to restore freedom. In the 119th Psalm, David said, I walk at liberty, I'm free, for I seek thy precepts. I try to live by your commandments. It restores freedom. G.K. Chesterton has a story about a group of sailors who sailed by, sailed to an island in the Pacific and it had high walls, cliffs, and they went up and there were rails around the cliffs and the people were joyous and happy. And about a year later they came back and everyone was miserable and afraid and it turned out that somebody had said, you know, those rails are restrictive. We're not free. We'll take those rails down. So they took them down and several people fell over the cliffs and died and then everyone was afraid and, and critical and the rails had not taken freedom away. They had given freedom. God set up some rails in life, the Ten Commandments. They give freedom. They don't take it away. So we live within those rails. We experience freedom. Our calling in life, in a sense, is uh, to help put the rails back up in our society. And we do it as we seek to live by those rails ourselves, by those commandments. And then as we help others, first to see their need of a mediator. And come to know Christ so that the dominion of sin can be broken in their lives. That's where we come back to the family for the Father. Take out your card, if you would. Let me challenge you. The people around you don't know their need. They don't know about their undone state and their need of a mediator. And you'll be committing yourself to try to reach out to them. Trusting God to use you. And I want to challenge you to fill this out and say, all right, I'm going to trust God to use me to reach a family during this year or another individual. Let me ask you to just take a moment right now and fill it out. We're going to have prayer, and then I want to ask you to fill it out and to indicate also whether you'll come to that luncheon. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Maybe also that uh, while our hearts are bowed, that you have never received Christ, you, of course, need the mediator. You need to commit your life to Jesus Christ and surrender and trust. And you can do that right now. Pray in your heart like this. Lord Jesus, I see the thunder and the lightning and sense my guilt and your holiness. And I invite you into my life and trust you as my Savior. If you've already done that and you are willing to uh, to trust him, just just uh, tell him right now, Lord, I trust you to use me to lead another family to you, or more than that, this coming year and into the fellowship of the church. And I commit myself looking to you to enable me to do it. Amen. If you would.